Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is December the 9th, 2020. This is episode 2788 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, that is interview day, and it's a bit of a change-up of an interview today. And if you're like, I don't know about this subject, give it a chance, man. Um, you're going to hear basically a low-level and at the same time high-level business discussion around the concepts that go along with running, starting, managing, building a manufacturer's rep firm. And... This was a great interview for me to do because I come from uh, an extensive amount of experience with this as a uh, regional vice president of sales managing uh, almost 40 reps in, in about five different, divided up against five rep firms. Where the gentleman we're interviewing with today, John Davis, is the principal owner of his own rep firm. And it's not the same world, but it's a very close world. We had common customers and things like that. So we're able to riff on some things. And But you'll hear us go into the fact that you don't have to be technical to be in this environment. There are so many opportunities. Pretty much if a thing is made and sold through distribution beyond being sold directly for pennies on Amazon... If there is any sort of two-tier distribution system, a manufacturer spec, a large number of retail outlets, anything like that, if there's a trade show for it, there's probably an opportunity in the rep sector. And what that means is whatever it is you have experience in, if you're good at it and you like it, there's probably an opportunity. And it is, it is actually an immense opportunity. You'll hear some of the success stories I have of rep firms that I managed in the past. Uh, one in particular, I'll kind of leak ahead. I, I had a rep firm that I managed that was principally owned by two brothers, and they had some minor partners in their other reps that had bought into minor shares. But the, the two brothers owned uh, combined 90% of the, the shares in the company. The one brother who was very big into wines, who would like go to Italy and go to France and, 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 and tour the wine country and learn about those wines and then buy cases of wine to have shipped back to the States, etc., He had more money in his wine cellar than I have in my house right now, just in his wine cellar. That's the amount of wealth that can be acquired. Now, you'll hear me explain uh, that in another story involving a boat that th these gentlemen had put a lot of years in and built a lot of success, and they were very good at what they did. However, if you're going to go into something, It's a nice idea to go into something that has really high upward potential. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity here. And there may be some of you in the audience that from this conversation will come away with, I can do that. And maybe you can. Or maybe it will lead you somewhere else. That's what I always hope to do when I talk about entrepreneurial level subjects like this. Before we get into this, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go from the company that says what it does and does what it says. ReadyMadeResources.com. If you can think of it, and it's for prepping or off-grid living or tactical, practical, everything in between, guns to gardens, you will find it at ReadyMadeResources.com. Long-term sponsor of the show, been with us well past 10 years now. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. This is one of these great companies that's really found a great niche. A place where, you know, you can start out with very little knowledge and just some basic understanding of hand tools, and you can start learning to make knives. And then from there, you can take that as far as you want. You can just become really good at making kit knives, and I know people that do that and actually do pretty well with a side hustle. 
Uh, you can become, you know, someone that's using raw materials and buying high-quality steels and, and doing your own uh, uh, complete fabrication from the ground up or anything in between. You'll find everything you need, including the information and resources to get it done at knifekits.com. Remember, knifekits.com also does a discount for members of the Members Support Brigade. With that, uh, let's dig into this, but I want to start out with a quote that really hits on the current state of affairs in the world with COVID. But it also really hits on kind of the subject we're going to talk about today with the fact that you can get out of being controlled by others and write your own destiny through entrepreneurship. This is from Voltaire. I don't quote a lot of Voltaire, but I love this quote. It is difficult to free fools from the chains they revere. There are so many people that actually like the captivity they live in. They'll complain about it. But my only explanation, and Voltaire's only explanation, is they revere those chains. They value. They, I've said this before, that America has become a nation of slaves who not only put their own chains on, but they polish them. They polish them. It doesn't have to be that way. There are many options right now to circumvent these systems of controls that are going in. And one of the best options you can make for yourself where you can stop telling me, but I can't move because of my job, is to have a business of your own. It's not for everybody. I'm not saying that. I am saying before you write it off, consider it and, and, and tune in carefully today, listening to the discussions that we have. And understand, these are the type of opportunities that are out there. And some of these opportunities exist in industries that measure their sales in billions of dollars. It's cutthroat and it's tough, but you only need a little piece of a billion to have a million. Just something to think about. With that, let's go and introduce our special guest today, John Davis, a second-generation owner of Paul Davis Automation, an Ohio-based manufacturer's representative firm that specializes in high-tech motion control product lines with a focus on Rockwell Automation Systems and their partner network. He start, The firm was started in 1989, so it's been around a while. John joins us today to talk to you about how this business model actually might not only be a great business to be in, but also might be a great fit for the prepper-type individual as well. With that, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Good to be here. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Hey, you know, when I got your request for an interview, I was like, that's a cool idea. No, it's not at the same time. Having, having <laughs> been a, a former regional uh, VP managing like 38 manufacturers reps, I was worried that I might get triggered in our pre-talk. I already did. But actually, manufacturers rep is a great business to be in. And I think we have a huge number of people in this audience always trying to figure out like what business can I go in? How can I be more entrepreneurial, et cetera? And there's a lot of entryways into this business as well before we dig into it directly let's who, who the heck is a john you know what the heck is a john davis and uh and how did you end up uh as as a manufacturer's rep well man i i tell you i'm 37 years old and still trying to figure out what the heck a john davis is myself <laughs> but the uh the, the short answer i guess is um so we live in ohio we're on the eastern side of ohio and in, in rural ohio and uh we my family has to thank you you big jerk for uh, getting us to move out to the uh to the country and we're really enjoying that but um I've uh, been a manufacturer's rep for about uh, 12 years now. Uh, it is not the business that I intended on getting into. In fact, furthest from it, I, I started out my career life as uh, wanting to be a software engineer, and that's what my formal training is in and schooling and all that good stuff. 
but uh, it was a family business, and as it turns out, my, my parents were getting ready to shut it down and close the doors, and um, I was between jobs at the time, and said, hey, uh, I think you know this will be something that will tide me over for a few months. Uh, if you guys are interested in, in selling it, I'm interested in buying it. And they said, so what? There's, there's nothing left. I said, well, even better. Like, well, we'll figure something out. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that was 12 years ago. And uh, here I am today, 12 years later, still doing the job that I didn't think I would be doing for all that long, right? So that That's awesome. It it, um, it, it makes me think of, of another person in my past, uh, Dick Yingling from Yingling Brewery. Because I, it's like one of those guys, you know, when you hear your second generation, or in his case, like seventh generation into business, you always think, oh, well, they just had the business handed to them. And it was a similar <laughs> situation. The, that brewery was on the verge of bankruptcy. And so he wanted to take it over. And his old man said, go get a loan. You know yeah. I mean? And he built it into a billion-dollar concern. So it's 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 often the case that people misjudge things like that just because your your father owned the business or a family member owned the business. That's a really cool kind of background. So I know the answer to a lot of these questions, but I, I, the reason we have you here is for you to explain it from your angle. So can you start out with what what is a manufacturer's representative and, and how do they make money? Sure. Uh, so you know, this question um, is an easy one and also a hard one to answer because still to this day, none, none of my friends know what to do. And I try to explain it to them and they kind of gloss over and they're like, you're a salesman or something uh, whatever right <laughs> but the, the the simplest way to describe it is kind of like your your Amazon affiliate program that you do it just predates the Amazon affiliate program by a really really long time um, and what I mean by that uh, being similar to the affiliate program is that at a very base level um, a manufacturer's representative uh, represents manufacturers so we sell their product so they have a specific product to sell we work within a specific niche, uh, and there are all kinds of niches, everything from house goods to industrial automation to test equipment and, and everything in between. We operate within a certain niche, and the manufacturer finds us and says, hey, we want you to sell our product. We say, great, we have a good customer base for it. We sell a product. They pay us a commission, just like the Amazon affiliate program. It's a, a really straightforward way to do it. And, I mean, there's different agreements, too, but in many instances – a rep firm will have an exclusive on all sales or a certain type of sales within a defined territory. That's one thing that makes it a little bit different than a typical sales job. So generally, rep firm is not competing with rep firm for the same line um, other than to acquire it. But once it's acquired, for instance, I my reps represented Fluke and one of our um, competitors was Agilent. So another rep firm within that territorial boundary would be trying to sell Agilent against us, not another person, like with real estate, where two people are trying to sell houses right from underneath each other. Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, and, and you know, again, there's variations on the theme because lots of different companies go to market in, in lots of different ways. Yep. But for higher tech stuff, that like what you used to sell and what we sell today, um, yeah, so we generally get an exclusive contract uh, for a specific geographic territory. And there's an organization called MANA, which is uh, uh, Manufacturers Agents National Association. It's a trade organization for manufacturers reps. I just rolled off their uh, board of directors as their chairman. But they, um, they define these territories in the U.S. And uh, in that territory, there would be the fluke rep. Or there would be, um, you know, the Linmont rep, which is one of the lines that we represent. And yeah, it, it, we just sell that. And the only people we compete against would not be other, in your case, not other fluke reps or 
other Limot reps, it would be like the other guy, right? Some, yeah. some other competing technology. Exactly right. Yep. Absolutely. And it, like you said, there's various ways that gets done. Like we had a very large catalog business and reps weren't paid on the catalog business. They were also were not expected to support it. So yep. when people just bought out of like the tech, uh, I can't remember, tech micro or something like that, ah, that yeah, we weren't going to yeah. pay a rep for that because they had nothing to do with it. And on the other end of it, like if somebody bought through Graybar or Annexter and they had a problem, well, go help them, right? And like yep. if somebody had a problem out of tech micro, that's tech micro's problem, man. That's so like that does vary just so people don't think it's like a, a complete cakewalk. And then you always have a dick like me on your back, you know, <laughs> like what's going on? What's yeah. up? What's your Where's your forecast? We talked about that, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's like like I was telling you this for the benefit of the listeners. Like when you called me, it's like I had a panic attack. Like, oh god, do I need to give a forecast to Jack? Like, does he have my target account list? Like, ah, I just finished this up this year. Like, what? Yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. yeah. So, what does a typical day look like? Well, you know, if you're if you're the regional manager, the typical day of what your rep does, I mean, it involves golfing and eating lunch and uh, and all that stuff. But um, no, the uh, the typical day that that's what people think we do. It's like that old meme on the internet of like what I actually do, what people think I do, what other people think we do. Um, a typical day looks like any any uh, I would say higher level outside sales job. So if anybody listening is already in a direct sales position with a with a company. It's a similar type of thing. Um, reps typically tend to work remotely, so this whole thing with COVID has not really been a, a big issue for us. So most of us work out of our homes when we're not traveling, which is generally often when the world's not stupidly locked down in a pandemic situation. Uh, and a lot of it is spent um, doing email, doing uh, outbound sales promotion, uh, trying to get in contact with uh, customers who already use our product trying to find new customers who don't use our product, but we can try to uh, try to help them solve an issue. It, it's a, it's sales. It's a lot of communication, but I think the biggest difference between what I do for a living and what maybe somebody else would do for a living who's employed as a direct salesperson is that everything, all of that, that entire schedule, how it's done is, is up to me. Um, our, we call the companies we represent, we call them our principals, so the manufacturers that we represent, they don't really tell us what to do. And frankly, they don't really care what we do. No. All that they care about is, are your sales bigger at the end of the year than they were the year before? And if they aren't, you better have a damn good reason for it. <laughs> and and if they are, that's great. Um, and you're a gold star for approximately one day if you beat your sales goal. And then the very next day, it's what do you, you know, what do you, you got a new sales week? goal that's bigger than your last sales goal. Exactly. There's that's a right. recession. Yeah. I don't care. Sell around it. That was like, sell around it. You know, sell around it. You got a problem here, sell around it. You know, and there's, yep. But that's that's part of the deal with having the freedom, right? You're carrying a bag, yeah. you make your bag, you're good. No one gives a shit what you did as long as you make it. And uh, coming from a manufacturer's perspective, managing reps is a lot easier than managing employees because hmm. there's so much I don't have to deal with, right? Yeah. Like if I have a problem with the firm, I can replace it. Yeah, I don't have to go through HR. Bye, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And if you yeah. have a pro yeah. and if you own a firm and like, let's say your firm's rather large, you have ten employees, and you have a problem with one of your employees, it's not my problem, right? It's your problem. 
I just care, yeah. like you said, I just care about my numbers. And then my job as a regional in that instance would be, you can't close the deal, you need help, I'll come in and help you close it, provide exactly. engineering level support, whatever it is, relationship management support, etc. Show up, don't be an out-of-town clown. And yep. it's yeah. it's a great way, and that's why, like, kind of going into this, we're, we're going to talk about what industries do this model, and, and that'll help people find, you know, Uh, opportunity. But before we even do that, why do you think it's better for you to be a manufacturer's rep than a direct sales rep? And why is it worse from your perspective? Well, from a from a better standpoint, there's um, there's really I, I guess two primary reasons of why I do it because it, it is like any sales job, it can be a really frustrating. Uh, life to live. S sales is not easy. When when I first got involved in this, and I should have known better, just as an aside, because I grew up with it with my parents doing it. Um, you know, I, I should have known that uh, this is not a not a cakewalk, right? But of course, you get into it, and you're like, oh, I can sell anything. Like I'm personal, I can do whatever, and you find out it's really freaking freaking hard. But uh, yeah, as far as you know, why do I do it? Um, so there's there's really two reasons. And one, I think I'm unemployable. Uh, you know, I like being able to work for myself. I've been doing it for a long time now. Uh, it is, uh, I think I have a pretty good way of doing things. And, um, you know, being a manufacturer's rep is really the purest form of, of capitalism. There is no politics. There is no, uh, I should say there's no work politics. There, there's no complication in it. Like you either sell and you perform or you don't. And if you perform, you make a lot of money. If you don't perform, then you move on and find something else where you can perform in. That fits my personality, too. I, I didn't really know what this word was or what this um, kind of situation was. But uh, when you did that episode on uh, what a polymath is, I forget when that was uh, a while back, a few episodes. I'm listening to that going, oh, my God, this is this is me. Like Jack is describing me to a T. And I thought all this behavior was kind of normal. But as it turns out, I need a lot of flexibility in my life. And I need to make a fair amount of money because I like, my primary hobby is learning new things. That's what I do. I learn new skills and uh Uh, new uh, new hobbies and that type of thing. So I do it for the flexibility um, and uh, and the freedom. I, I mean, to summarize all that, I, I suppose. Uh, I think you also asked what the worst parts of it are. It's like any other sales job, like I said before. I mean, there are there are days when it's really good and there are days when it's really bad. Um, it's it's a high risk type of job in some ways. And what I mean by that is like any high risk, high reward type of situation. You can do very well as a manufacturer's rep and have a fantastic career and build a company. But like you had mentioned earlier with contracts, there is no HR involved, right? So most of the contracts that we have with our manufacturers, they have a 30-day termination clause yeah. in them, which means you can be doing a million dollars worth of business with them. And if something goes sideways, you know, boom, you get a letter and you have 30 days. And if you're making, you know, if your company brings in 50 grand of revenue a month from that, that 50 grand just goes gone after 30 days. Yeah. yeah. I can tell you a story of exactly how that can happen, too, where you did nothing wrong. Um, yeah. I, I worked for Fluke Networks, but I didn't start there. I started with Microtest. It was a competitor. They bought us, and, and then when they consolidated the line, we went into each territory and picked a winner. Yep. So, so half lost. It turned out that almost all of Fluke's reps won because it was political, <laughs> but – Yep. It, it it you know it was the one territory that they the the rep out there didn't really want it. <laughs> then we then we kept the, the microtest rep and moved them over to Fluke, but that was yep. that was a big check for people. Now in the industry we were in, we would have been like a number three, number four line for a firm because like cables and jacks were just in such quantity. 
and they're on every project. So it, it maybe didn't hurt as bad, but it hurts. Um, I know one of my firms ended up having to lay off a person because, yeah. like, okay, I can't afford I can't afford six reps in this territory without this line, and they had no hope of picking up a, a competitive line. Conversely, one of my best firms, I mean, my best firms, like literally the guy that had my job before I did quit his job and went to work there, immediately picked up the competitive line, our biggest yep. competitor, and and so that's the the. The other side of that, like if you have a job as a direct salesperson and you get fired, it's like there's a, a stink on you. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, you're still like, why don't you have a job? How'd you lose yep. your job, right? Like you have to explain that. Where if you're a rep firm, you lost a line. If you're a good rep firm, competitors like, oh, really? You lost a line. Well, let me show you what we, because they want to, like if you have distributor relationships, customer relationships, oh, yeah. they want yep. in. So, And also, if you have a regional like me, and I'm a total dick, you could just decide, you know what, it's not worth dealing with them anymore, and pick. And you also have like the reason they, you have as much freedom as they do, is because they want to be able to cut you in 30. Well, you you can leave in 30, so it's yeah. a two way street. So it's it's often the case that you know now a firm can get a real black relationship and they're constantly jumping lines in the same right area. Yeah. But if it's occasional and due to reason. The competitive lines see this as oh that's an opportunity that I, I can I can pick this firm up and I'm immediately I, I expand my footprint. Oh for for sure and you know, those companies know too. I, it, I've seen this with uh, with through Mana we dealt with a lot of different industry verticals that used reps and and whatnot and it, it look, you always look at it the big business landscape in the U.S. and there's like there's so many manufacturers and so many customers and, and companies but what you really find is that There are niches in everything, right? So there are only so many customers, distributors, reps in a given geographic territory. So, for example, you're over in uh, Pennsylvania, I think, when you were working in Western PA. Yep. There's only so many companies like that uh, over in Western PA. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what's going on if some if the you know. Uh, a ABB terminates their reps because whatever they had a manager that was hired that was probably previously employed at the competitor. People know what's coming on the pike, and they know why you were terminated, and they're yep. just waiting to pick you up. So, yep. absolutely right, 100%. Yep. Yeah, it, 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 it goes it goes on both sides of that. Like people that can manage reps, like if you if you wanted a, a high level sales job, I, if I if I were willing, and I'm not, if I were willing to go back into it, that's what I would want to do again is manage reps. Yeah, because you get the same effect. Like when I left Fluke, nobody really knew exactly why; they just knew that. And they're like, shit, Spirico's on the market. I got calls from every. Are you interested? Are you? Do you want to come? Like, and, and it didn't. Need, like, we're gonna get into this next with industries. It was like I had, you know, calls from industries that I knew nothing about the industry. They didn't give a shit. They didn't yeah. care. They knew I could manage reps. They knew I could learn the product line, and the reps already had product knowledge. And the fact that I could open doors into distribution channels, et cetera. Like, well, you know, I had. I had cable manufacturers, like, you know, peripheral, but I got I got calls from people that were in the hardware world versus the testing and infrastructure world and things like that, like, real quick, like, hey, are you, you know, and it wasn't always the manufacturer. It was often yep. a rep firm. It was often a rep firm, like, oh, we understand, we can talk to our manufacturer, they need somebody, like, and it was immediate. It was like, I resigned, <clears throat> and it was like two weeks before Christmas. And first of the year, the phone started ringing. 
Yep. And it was just, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to yeah. travel anymore. But it's, I think that, and that might be one of the advantages of being a rep. Your territory is going to be a lot smaller, right? Your, your travel is going to be a lot less than a regional who's got, you know, five sub-territories with five rep firms. Oh, sure. Yeah, 100%. And, and, you know, when you talk about your previous job with, with Fluke, like it, I know what your travel load was because I know um, that I have people who are Jack Spear codes that I, that I work for now. And that type of travel, it's a lot different for me to get in my truck and go drive someplace. Sure. You know, I do, in a normal year, I do 55 to 60,000 miles of driving. I would much rather do 55 to 60,000 miles of driving, especially because I own the business and I can reimburse that mileage to myself. But I'd much rather do that than get on an airplane and spend my life in airports. And uh, I mean, I think I was talking to, I forget what the threshold is now, but one of my regionals, he's a like a Delta double platinum yeah. something, something, right? Yeah. And you, you look at it, and that means he spent like, uh, what, he did like 200 segments on an airline in a year or something like that? It's like, ugh. Yeah, I had all kinds of special yeah. airline powers with American back in the day, right? And like the yeah. only time that mattered was when like my family and I were going to Florida on vacation. The rest yep. of the time, it was just like, I'm in the airport. Yeah, I get to fly first class, big freaking deal. Right, like, and it wears you <laughs> yeah. out, like, because what you're doing is you you're gonna let's say you have five territories, well, you're gonna jump into territory number one for a week, and yep. you're gonna go home for the weekend, and you're gonna go to two, three, and by the time you get to five, maybe you can take a week at home, keeping all the promises you made, and you're right back into one. So if you're yeah. home a week every every six, you're lucky, and that's. That's tough. It, it wears you out. You like you feel like your kid grows between the time you you know leave on Monday and come back on Friday. Yeah. Oh yeah. For for sure. And you know it's interesting. Like you, um, uh, when you left and decided to get into what you're doing now, like that is a common inflection point. When we look at the data through Mana, so we pull a bunch of people and ask them like, how do you become reps and and why do you get into this and all that stuff. You're, the situation you were in, uh, high-performing salesperson promoted up through, you know, regional manager, national sales manager, director, you know, district, whatever the title is, right? Yeah. They get up there. They are midway through their career, extremely tired of travel. They think they can make more money because they've capped out or maxed out or maybe they just want more freedom. And uh, you went a route that worked really well and similar in sales. And, you know, another common route to go is that's how rep firms get started. Oh, absolutely. they they start rep firms, right? So, yeah. Like I said, the guy that had yeah. my job before me, he went to work for a firm as a partner. Yeah. Like he bought his way in a firm. Let's talk about the industries, though. Like I think there's people th sitting out there listening, okay, well, you're in automation. I was in computer testing. Um, so it's all high tech. But really, lots of industries use this model. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, pick one. Um, okay. So – the listeners right now, I mean, all of us are, um, you know, we share common things that we that we like and, and industries that we like and all that. Most people have no idea what test equipment is or automation or, or whatever. So hopefully we're not sailing over most people's heads. But the model of a manufacturer's rep works for pretty much any manufacturer of goods out there. They do tend to trend smaller. So if the manufacturing company is a little bit smaller, they don't have a huge footprint to hire all these people and stick them in places all over the country. Uh, you know, that that's ripe for reps. But there's also massive companies like Fluke, who's you know, a billion-dollar company or whatever that they use reps as well. I think if you – like a, a good place to start looking – 
Um, if you have brick and mortar stores that you can actually go to nowadays, which is another problem, um, uh, a good way to find out if, you know, something that you really enjoy uses reps, some industry segment that you really enjoy uses reps, go to the store and talk to somebody behind the counter and be like, Hey, is there a guy who comes in who's, you know, always bringing you donuts or bagels and he's the guy who sells you some stuff? Like, do you have salespeople that call on you? Okay. You have salespeople that call on you. Do you know who do they work for? And if they say a company name that doesn't sound like, um, you know, what's on the wall of the product they have, yeah. it's probably a rep firm of, of some type, right? But I mean, yeah, to answer your question more broadly, there is, there is not a segment that does not use reps. You just have to figure out where they use them and who the companies are. Yeah, I mean, just to drive that home about how broad this is, uh, our family has a, a, a friend relationship with another family, and the gentleman, uh, the, the kind of patriarch of the family is a guy named Byron, and he worked for Mattel. And mm. when we discuss what he did for Mattel, the toy company, and I did for Fluke Networks, it's the same job. It's the same job. He has people fretting over the forecast of Barbie dolls. Right, I mean, like, I mean, it's it's merchandising, it's distributor relationships, et cetera. It's not the same job, but it's the same job. You're not, you know, like with what I do, and I imagine with what you do, sometimes it's like an installation or something, and you're 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 supporting distributors who are bidding on contracts and things like that. So nobody's yep. nobody's going out to bid for fifty thousand Barbie dolls, but the logistics of handling customer relationships, distribution channels forecasting, marketing, etc., it's all the same. So if if it's in high-level infrastructure testing, industrial automation, and toys, whatever it is that you know well, there is probably some opportunity for a rep firm in that niche, no matter what it is, as long as there's a thing or a service at the end of the day. If it's, I don't know, if it's downloading videos, that's probably not something a rep firm's going to, but who knows, right? Knows, right? Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know what the demographics look like on, on the listener base, but, you know, if there's any of you out there that work for uh, uh, manufacturers or if you take any type of good and you do something to it and send it out the door, uh, go over and hang out in engineering and purchasing and uh, uh, maybe even talk to the guys out or, or the people out on the floor who are doing the work. It, it doesn't really, like Jack said, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. I guarantee you, you probably have a rep calling on you for something, um, and maybe they're selling you a lot of things. But go uh, go talk to those people in those departments, and I guarantee you, you'll find one. While it's hurting now, I would say if there's a trade show for it, there's reps for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. it, right? If there's a trade show for a thing, I guarantee, and I'm not saying there has to be, but I guarantee you if there's trade shows around a thing, There are reps for that thing. When we used to do the big tech trade shows like in 99 when it was before the dot-com bust and all, and it was almost like Circus Olay shit going on at the trade shows in Vegas and stuff, every freaking manufacturer there was either doing direct sales force or was doing rep firm. And yep. that meant if they're doing direct sales force, there's actually opportunity for rep firms. I had another job in the hardware space. We didn't really use rep firms, but when a rep firm came to us and said, hey, I've got a contract sitting here for half a million bucks if you want it. You know, we figured out a way to work with them. We, yep. we Essentially, we made them a type of distributor because we, the model was not suited for a true – but we, it still became a revenue source for them. And, and that's yeah. the flexibility you have there. Well, it's it's the ultimate – like you've talked about before in other like, business-oriented episodes of – 
you know, your, your job is companies look for people who can add value. I mean, that, that's what a job is at its, at its basic uh, ingredients, right? This person can add me value. How much value do they add uh, dictates how well they're compensated and retained and all that stuff. Uh, for somebody looking to get into just doing anything, right? Like you always talk about entrepreneurialism and starting your own business and whatnot. I mean, you don't have to go. There's no certification for this. Uh, there's no huge barriers to entry. If you, if there's something that you see, uh, whatever grow lights or something, I don't know, pick, pick something and just run with it. If you pitch it to the company that makes them, I mean, you're going to get no a lot, but when you get yes, it's a tremendous opportunity and it's really, I mean, it's kind of straightforward to do, right? Hey, I think I can sell your product. This is my plan for it. Pay me a commission every time I sell it. Uh, no company's going to turn that down. Uh, they would be stupid to. Why, why would they? It's more revenue, right? Yeah, and I think it's important that you do look for things that are being sold outside of the automated direct to the customer. So, yeah, like a grow light. Yeah, but then you need to be like in I don't know the cannabis niche or something, right? Like or yeah. the indoor automated vertical farm world is you know where people are buying. They're going to three distributors and they're getting bids on shit and stuff like that. Because that's where the rep brings value. If people, yep. if you're talking about a line that everybody just buys on Amazon three and four at a time, that company's not looking for you. They're in a different. So it's really the sales model less than the product, I guess, in that point. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. If it's something on Amazon, that's um, that's not good. Maybe a better analogy would be if you have a, uh, if you're if you know a company well that sells a uh, like a specialty firearm product. I can't think of one off the top of it. Maybe, maybe a better sling than somebody else, right? Yeah. And uh, you have an in at the local, um, uh, like Fen for Feather here in Ohio is a, a really good independently owned outdoor hunting uh, firearms, uh, archery, that type of store. Uh, if you have an in with them and you know this guy who makes this thing, I mean, that's probably a better, uh, a better yeah. fit for that because that guy's not going to sell on Amazon and Ben's looking for stuff that differentiates them from Amazon, right? So you gotta, you gotta work it a little bit and find a niche. Yeah, or at least that there's the opportunity to put in big stocking orders or fulfillment of contractual obligations, things like that. Like the yeah. one-off sale doesn't work real good in there. Um, no. Let's talk about starting this. There's, there's lots of on-ramps into this world. What do you say about that? Well, I think it depends on um, where you're at right now and what you're looking to do with it. So there are a lot of on-ramps, and we, we just discussed one of them, probably more of a, a side hustle approach. Uh, if you want to do – I know a guy who was a state highway trooper out in New Hampshire, but he was also a manufacturer's rep, right? Oh. And because of his schedule where he was – he was a sergeant in the New Hampshire State Police – because he was on, what, two days, uh, 224s or something like that. He had three days with which to work. Okay. Everybody knew what he was doing, and, you know, he did basically a rep gig as a side hustle. Uh, that's not a common on-ramp, though. Not to say it can't be done, um, but certainly something. Um, the most common on-ramp would be the, the example we gave earlier. Uh, if you're in a sales position already and you are either running up against uh, just travel fatigue or maybe the compensation plan at your company sucks, uh, here's a good one. If you're a salesperson at a company and you are constantly the number one performer and you keep maxing out your compensation plan yeah. or, or they keep messing around with it, they're like, well, okay. So I actually knew somebody this happened to. The guy was making more money than the president of the company and they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. So they kept changing his compensation structure and it basically just messing around with how he's being paid. He was, it got to the point where he was never going to be able to hit the, the target that would give him the big bonus, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of 
people that happens to, they give the big, big middle finger to the company and say, hey, I'm going to become a manufacturer's rep. Uh, you're going to be my first line. I'm going to represent you in this territory. And then they, they grow the business from there. Yeah, I, uh, I can tell you yeah. a way that that's done that if you ever hear this as a prospective employee, run. It's called <laughs> incremental, incremental commission factor. So the way that works is, you know, I would carry a, about a $100 million dollar quota. And so they would say your compensation is worth $150,000 at plan, and your base salary is $80,000. Yep. So right up until you hit your, your quota, your commission was directly attributable to the delta between your base pay and your, your, your at plan pay, and then you mm. bonused after that, which seems okay. Until next year, when your quota goes from $90 million a year to $110 million a year, and your IC factor retroactively adjusts for that new delta, and you're getting paid less per sale on everything in between until you bonus out the other side of it. So it's not just a matter of not if you don't make your quota, you, you don't keep your job. It's you can make your quota, which has gone up exponentially, and not make any more money. And that's just yeah, that's, one that's, way that they screw salespeople in the butt, right? And, and it's oh yeah, it, it's 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 a typical thing that happens. Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, there, there's somebody over in the finance department, right? It's the controller or somebody, and they're they're, they're looking at the employee costs and they're looking at the the um, bonus structure going out and, and signing checks, and they're like, wait a wait a minute, and they they don't give a damn whether or not you're bringing no. if you, if you brought in a company. $10 million dollars in additional revenue or whatever, right? Yeah. They don't care about that. It's just like, holy crap, we're paying Spirico a lot of money. Like, yeah. Huh, yeah. They seldom yeah. understand. The person making that decision is generally disconnected from the fact that if I didn't want to do something else, that I literally could walk that business somewhere else. They don't understand yeah. that when they do that, right? And that's, like yeah. you said, that's why a lot of guys go off and do rep firms because, okay, you can take your non-compete now and stick it in your ass, Right, right. Because yep. it's a totally different association, and yeah, I'm going to walk all that business over to a new a new source. Oh, sure, yeah, it happens all the time, and it, maybe a corollary to this this question too would be of like, who, uh, how do you on ramp? How do you you get started? Um, it's kind of like we sort of answered in a way like, what type of people should get started? Um, yeah. it, this is a, a slam dunk for people if you're already in sales. Like if you're already in sales you can go out and Google manufacturer's representative and how to start a firm. And like, you know how to sell, right? Like that is a trade and, and you got it. Not to say that I haven't met sales or rep owners who did not start out in sales. But if, if you are um, not a salesperson already and you are looking and you're looking at this going like, okay, like I, I think I get this. I can, I can give a shot at this. That is a really hard path forward. Not to say that it's not doable, but, um, I've seen uh, engineers in particular, and those are the people that I know. Mm -hmm. That's the type of people that I work with. Smart people um, work with a lot of engineers. I have an engineering background myself. Like I, I get it. But the biggest failures I typically see are when an engineer tries to get into sales without some type of mentorship program or mm -hmm. education program, and it's it's not not good. So um, the yeah, worlds it, are so different. They're used to being compensated in a totally different way and judged in a totally yep. different way that I'm not saying the jump can't be made, but like you said, it requires mentorship. I mean, just from my viewpoint in working with firms when I did, the main ways I saw people become owners of firms were, number one, they just did it 
and they were just the kind of person that was going to do something. But that was less common than the second way, which was the most common way was people went to work for a firm, learned the business, and got to a point where the owner of that firm's like, you know what, I'm done. And then they were able, because they had a track record, a handle of the business, whatever, to go get enough financing to buy out the ownership. That yep. was that was very common. Or they went to work for somebody, did it for a while, that opportunity didn't present itself, and they went out and maybe they, you know, a lot of times these guys are like, okay, so, you know, John helped me out. John brought me up in a business. I don't want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with John now. I don't feel right about that. So they would just take the skill set and lateral into a non-competitive niche. and But that way they knew the business of a rep firm. Yeah. Because yep. it's not, man, it is, you know what, you do take people donuts, and you do play golf, or in my case, you go skeet shooting or whatever. Like, And there's a lot of kind of customer entertainment that goes along with it. But that is, that's like the icing on the cake. The cake is hard, grinding, everyday work and as soon as you start dealing with distributors you got to make every distributor feel like they're your only distributor you got to make every <laughs> consultant feel like they're your yep. only consultant it's, you know like it's it's a constant level of ass kissing to a degree as well you know and you oh, got to balance yeah, ass sure. kissing with ass kicking like you have to you know you have to be firm but you have to be pleasant and it's it it's it's there and then there's The, the the back end work and all of the other you know if you're going to be a big enough firm to have employees there's managing your employees it's it is a complete and total industry that you're entering and you have to be able to at least do a little bit of all the parts of it hey, uh, yeah uh, absolutely and you know it's like that um uh, I think it was on me where you posted that picture what was it no nobody cares work work harder, harder yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely it. Like, so I said earlier, like it, there was that old like six panel meme of like what I actually do, what people think I yeah. do, like what my mom thinks I do and all that. Like the what people see reps or salespeople doing, it's like, of course, they're going to go skeet shooting. They're going golfing or, oh, look, they're going out to another fancy dinner on their expense account. Right. Yeah. Like life is so hard. But what it what it actually is, um, you know, for for us in particular, uh, we specialize in motion control. So we we go in and we take uh, big industrial processes and we try to automate them. And um, we're probably part of that issue with automating, um, you know, people's jobs away at some point. But we we take processes and we we automate them. We put robots in them and we we make them move and do stuff. Uh, a ton of my time is spent sitting in front of a computer, staring at something, thinking. This violates the laws of physics. Like, there's no way that this is going to work. But we have to figure out a way to make it work. Um, and even if we do make it work, if we're not selling it while we're engineering it at the same time, there, there's five other people on the bid, and I could blow 10 hours on a proposal and get paid absolutely zero for it if uh, if I don't get it. So it's it's a tremendous amount of hard work. And I mean, you got to be willing to put it in. It's, there's no easy path with something like this. Yeah. That I mean that is was a big part of what my reps did. We would we would spec product in at like the design level or the architectural level. So yep. you know, you got a big job going in ten floors on a uh, on a building, and we would try to spec into it that the contractor would have. So this this is so pre sales, right? The contractor yep. that wins the job would have to provide um, a piece of test equipment for the telecom clauses on each of the ten floors. Well, there's there's a seventy thousand dollars sale waiting to happen. It's going to happen someday. Whenever that job goes to bid, if you get in the spec, you're there. But you just spent all this time writing a spec and convincing an architect 
to include it in their spec, and you've tried to make their job easy where they can cut and paste it and it fits with what they're doing. And yep. then you got to then help that architect be the architect that wins the job over the other architect that you also want to spec product in with. So if you can spec all the architects that are bidding the same jobs, then then you're going to win no matter what. But if none of them win, then you lose no matter what and you make no money. Yeah. And it's, yep. it's, it's that type of work that I don't think people understand when they look at a, any kind of sales position from the outside. That That's the... That's the world you're living in. And so, yeah, I, maybe I'm taking that architect out to a $1,000 dinner. Sure. Uh, <laughs> six months into trying to win that job, and hopefully we did. Right? Yeah. Like, that's that's the job. And it's it's an interesting job. It's I, I, Again, I think I would, I would prefer doing it from the rep ownership level. There were certainly firms that I managed that those guys were hustling every day because they – We're new, and we had them because of their energy instead of their connections. But there were firms that worked for me that the owners of those firms had more money in their wine cellar than I did in my house. Yeah. Right. So there are there is there is that path after long enough and hard enough to to reap the full reward. It, it is there. It it is. It, it's like the twelve night or twelve night twelve month or twelve year rather overnight success type stuff, right? When yeah. people always joke about that, it's. But I think it's the same for any type of business ownership. I mean, when uh, thoughtfully at the beginning of the show, you had mentioned, um, you know, the second generation owner thing and people make a lot of assumptions. The first three years I was doing this, I made less than the guy at Home Depot who's stocking shelves. And, you know, it wasn't like it was a huge incremental explosion of income after that. It's been 12 really hard years and the, you know, you get to a certain point, you finally get your business going. And yeah, there, there is a point where the income kind of goes nonlinear and you start to experience a, a really big growth in business and you, you just kind of ride the wave as long as you can and, um, and do what you can. But, you know, any type of business you go into, uh, the beginning few years are going to be very rough. Uh, and if you go in to be a rep, um, you know, if you think you're a good salesperson, Try being a rep for five years, and if you're still there after five years, I mean, hell, if you're still there after two years, you are correct. You are a good salesperson. <laughs> But it, it weeds, if you're not, then you know it's uh, it's it weeds out a lot of, uh, and it's it's kind of black and white, right? It's it's brutal in a way. But uh, but there's a lot of uh, easiness about that. And in building a firm, that's going to be one of your biggest challenges if you're going to build it beyond yourself, right? Like, yeah. how do you hire people that are actually good at it? Yeah. And and it's hard because people that are good at it tend to be gunslingers, and that means that sooner or later they they do want to own their own firm or they do want to rep their own line or, or what, whatever you know they want some level of ownership, and those people are gold, but they're you you have to burn a lot of them out. It's in a way you remember the old show the old movie Boiler Room, yeah, oh, yeah. right. In a way, it's like that. Now you're not putting people into a telemarketing position selling penny stocks, right? But it is that same type of thing, like. You bring in these people and you just chew them up, and the ones that actually make it are your stars. And it's 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 a brutal business. It's rewarding, but it's brutal. Um, what about overhead as an owner of a firm? Like, what what is your overhead like? It really it, it, so not that much to be entirely honest. I mean, but you can design you can design it depending on what you want to do. And there's different types of reps, too. In our industry, for what we do, um, we sell knowledge primarily and, and also relationships. So 
what that means is we don't have we don't have to have a lot of infrastructure. We don't do consignment inventory. We don't we don't even touch product most of the time. Uh, I've got two other outside salespeople and uh, two inside people, and everybody works from their homes, and they've worked from their homes for as long as I've taken over the business. So. You know, my, my infrastructure is my mileage that I reimburse myself for. It's, of course, uh, my, my salespeople, they're independent as well. They're like-minded small business people, so they chose to go the 1099 route. So I pay them, uh, based on contracts with them, a certain amount of percentage of the, the commission that we get for sales in their territories. And, uh, you know, just uh, stuff, right? Travel, entertainment, my phone, um, uh, that type of thing. So uh, from that standpoint... It's really nice because I don't have a ton of infrastructure. We're, if you look at it from a profitability standpoint as a rep owner or, or even as my 1099 salespeople, we get to retain a lot of our earnings because it doesn't really go anywhere else, and that, that's a good thing. But – go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, on the other side of that, I know some people who are manufacturers reps for plumbing stuff, and let me tell you, man, these, <laughs> these people are making like – massive amounts of money off of selling toilets and faucets. Like, like the guy that you mentioned with the wine cellar, like, like yeah. that kind of money, but they have to have storefronts and they have to have consignment inventory and they've got warehouse staff and they've got lift trucks and buildings and, you know, all that stuff too. So it just depends on what you're, what you're getting into. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I would add one thing to it though. You're in a business where I always talk about working the 90% of the tax code that tells you how to get out of it. Where yeah. almost everything you do becomes a deduction, like yes. your existence becomes tax deductible as a as a manufacturer's rep firm, as a, yep. I should say as a principal in said <laughs> firm, right? Not necessarily yep. as a rep, but as a principal in said firm, your existence becomes a tax deduction. You can you can literally do things that you're like, no, there's no what, yes. Yes, you can, right? <laughs> and I, yes. that's one thing I really love about it is like, because you literally, you are the company in a lot of ways. So um, it's all a matter of like good CPA, good tax attorney and structure at that point. Like, because that, oh, that sure. wine cellar might be not a direct expense, but a depreciable over time expense because it's used for client entertainment. The, yep. Uh, one rep firm that I had up in New England owned a boat, and I mean a boat with a captain and a first mate that went to sea to do striper fishing, and that was all tax deductible. Because the only purpose of it was to take customers and regional manager dickheads like me fishing (laughs) to keep us happy, right? But it just so happened that the owner of that firm loved to do nothing more than fish. So he had his own skipper and first mate, and I mean, you're talking a yacht, right? You know, Bloody Mary bar inside it and all that crap, but it was 100% a write-off. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's like, I can do this or I can have a country club membership. What's the difference? Except I don't like golf. And it was was great for me, right, because that gave me an asset where I would have clients that I could invite. Because here's people that don't do sales maybe not understand why golf is the thing that it is. So you're a CEO of a company, and I have been trying to get you in a meeting for 15 minutes, right? I can, and I can't get you in a meeting for 15 minutes. But if I can get you on the golf course, I got you for two to four hours alone. Mm-hmm. Well, if I have you on a boat, I really got you, right? <laughs> so yep. so I could go invite these people that they were trying to get to that they couldn't get to onto the boat, 
Now I've got them there with my rep. Maybe I've got them teamed up with like the distributor that I know is going to mesh best with them. Maybe I got them with a the distributor that I already know is in their, you know, already in their, their approved vendor list. So I know I don't have to deal with that shit. And then this guy's writing off his fishing trips every day. Like, yep. and now to, to make this totally clear, the guy that owned the fishing boat through his firm had been in the business for 25 years in the Boston, you know, Rhode Island, Providence, et cetera, one of the biggest markets in the country in a really great industry at a time that it was a very good industry to be in because there was no wireless yet. And he was in cable and Jackson testers, but it's still the point like that that can be done. And then that part of that lifestyle becomes an expense, right? On, sure. on, on your income statement. Sorry. Can't have it. I spent it. The skipper's out getting drunk on my money. Sorry. <laughs> it, it, it's so true. I, one of my 1099 guys is is younger and brilliant, and he was doing something different and got into the business. Just a really smart guy. And I, I give I gave my guys options when they came on board. I said, you can either be uh, like, I'll employ you, and this yeah. is what your salary would be, and this is how the compensation works and all that. And, yeah, you get health care and you know, benefits and that type of thing. Or if you meet these 13 cri criteria that the IRS says so we don't get in trouble – You can be a 1099. And his first uh, instinct was, I don't know if I want to do the 1099 thing. I'm like, hold on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hold on. I said, so, you know, this is what the territory generates in sales. Yeah. This is what it could generate in sales because I think you're going to do a good job. And then let me introduce you to my friend over here called my tax accountant. Yeah. And he's going to talk to you about what it is to own your own business and what you can do with that. And, you know, he's a smart guy. He's got an engineering background. And, you know, we started going through it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I think that's the better way to go. I think I'm going to do that. It's like smart man. Absolutely. Well, and that But, if, if you are an owner, do you want that guy that sees that opportunity? Because now he's going to manage the business you gave him like it's his little mini company. Yep. And that means that at 2 o'clock in the morning when something really should be done but I don't want to do it, the employee goes to bed. The business owner does it, right? Yeah. Or prevents it from happening at 2 o'clock in the morning in the first place, right? It becomes more important to them. Like, employees turn out the light at the end of the day, and business owners, you know, turn the backup lighting on at the end of the day so they can keep working, right? And, like, yeah. that mindset, and if I would also say if you want to eventually go out on your own, you want to go in the way you just described because you're learning yeah. the business better that way. Yeah, and it also teaches you too. I mean, the the skill set um, doing this type of line of work. But again, even it, you don't have to be a manufacturer's representative. It could be any business you go out on your own. There is a difference between learning how to budget your household finances off of a paycheck that comes in and it's the same every single month, versus budgeting off of uh, variable income like commission income, for example, right? Because some months you may make. $15,000 that comes in. Yep. Uh, some months you may make $4,000 that comes in, right? And, but if you don't have that ability to do that type of budgeting and saving and all that, you're not going to be successful at owning your own business, period. Like you ha It doesn't matter what it is. If you can't do that and can't manage that, um, that's just not going to fly. So it's better to learn that under the tutelage of somebody else or um, you know, in that type of environment. I agree 100%. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be holes in cash flow in any business, and you have to create your own bridges which means you have to forecast the hole in advance, right? Yep. So I know when the money came in this quarter really good, and I know that summer's a slow time, some of that money has to be broken off and put as a bridge in that capital hole for that time period, and I have to know that's coming. I can't manage a business unless I do that because I have to meet payroll. 
Yep. Right? You know? And so if you can't do that, you're not going to be able to manage a business as an actual owner or at the operations level. So you might as well learn it from the beginning. I mean, it's like teach a kid to drive a stick shift and they can drive any car. Teach a kid yeah. to shoot with iron sights, they can shoot any rifle, right? So yep. start at that level, man. I think that's that's the way to be. Um, why do you think this is really a great business for preppers, survivalists, the kind of people listening to this show? Yeah, well, um, for one, uh, if you are a stubborn, bullheaded uh, son of a bitch who thinks he can do something better than everybody else, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a manufacturer's rep. It's perfect. Um, we, we have a few of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so, okay, so it goes back to uh, lifestyle design, really, right, um, which is a, a great term that you coined, and I've, I've borrowed that and used it in, um, in my own life. Um, you know, st step one of lifestyle design is you have to own your own business, period, or, or you have to, well, I'm not even going to say that, you have to own your own business. If you really want to have control over that, you have to own it. Um, it The people in this, in our group tend to, besides being stubborn, they also tend to be very open market minded. Um, I know agorism is a thing you talk quite a bit about, um, but just capitalism in, in general, right? Uh, this is distilled capitalism. Um, you could probably argue it's agorism in, in some ways, but I mean, it's very simple. Like I sell a product. You give me money in exchange for selling your product. That's the end of it. Like the relationship doesn't go much, much beyond that. So it fits in. I think with how people's brains work in this space too. And the, the skills that come along with it, if, if you are successful being a manufacturer's rep, um, you are going to be successful at being a survivalist or a prepper or um, whatever else, right? If you choose to get involved in that. The, the skill set of owning a business, thinking ahead, forecasting, all the stuff we just talked about, but also knowing how to sell stuff, um, work within an economy, all that stuff. It's a skill set that you have to have to do this whole prepping thing, right? And so it's it's everything. Gotcha. Um, you know, we talk a lot about automation. You even said, like, what you're doing is probably automating jobs away. Do you hmm. think that salespeople will still be relevant in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Like, how future-proof is the skill and ability to sell? So I will, um, you know, just as an aside, like factory automation in general and a, a lot of the stuff that you talk about with John Pugliano, um, that is an interesting topic. Um, there, it's very interesting what's going on in the factory space right now. And, and we can talk about that later if you, if you want to. But, um, the, uh, as far as salespeople going away, I will make you a bet right now. None of us, neither of us will probably be alive to see this, but, uh, When people go to Mars and there is a bar on Mars, because when people get there, they're going to set up a bar. <laughs> when if you sat at the bar in 2085 or whatever, you're going to hear salespeople sitting around the bar bitching about commissions and territories and, and all that stuff. Like it's it's just one of those things. It, it was the same thing was going on 200 years ago in colonial Boston. The same thing's going to be going on in uh, you know 200 years from now on Mars or, or whatever else. Thing, things do change. For example, Amazon, e-commerce, retail. Uh, if you were a salesperson selling, um, well, like grow lights, for example, right? If that's your core business, if you're selling a commodity that doesn't have a lot of uh, opportunity for value add, it's probably going to get tough. Um, the reason that we exist as a rep firm is not because of the products that we sell necessarily, but I, I'd mentioned we do motion control. Um, so motion control is extremely complex. 
my salespeople and I have a very clear working knowledge and a ton of experience of going up to a machine and saying like, all right, you want this thing to move this thing. And ultimately we have to do this process. We can do that and we can put something together that works and we can engineer the whole thing through and make a proposal and then they buy it and it works, right? That's not something that people can do off the street. So the type of technical sales that we do and, you know, probably people selling flukes still today, uh, you know, that type of stuff is always going to be there because you need somebody to help you engineer the solution. And the companies that we sell to, they're not hiring more engineers. There's not enough of them and they're also with budgetary issues and all that. So yeah, salespeople will be around, but I think the barrier to entry is going to be going to be harder. Um, selling commodities is not going to be a, an easy way to get in. Uh, so whatever it is that you decide to sell, if you want to go this route, make sure you have a very clear understanding of the value you're going to add and uh, know what you're selling inside and out. I mean, you got to be an expert. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think that the way I would put it is, as long as people have more than one choice in what they buy. And as long as people buy on relationships, there will be salespeople. Yeah. Right? Like as yep. long as you can actually influence a sale with a relationship, you're going to have salespeople. And then the more specialized the knowledge within that relationship connection, the better. Because if I'm buying, you say grow lights, you know, they're probably not going to do well. It depends, right? Like, so mm -hmm. if, if the companies have all decided we're using XYZ brand grow lights, no, you're not going to do well. If you still have innovations, energy efficiencies, grow lights tying into automated systems with pre-designed uh, components within them to be uh, forward and backward uh, compatible, things like that, and you're targeting the sector that's a growth sector like vertical farms in the, in the country, you can probably do really well. If you want to sell you know, $99 for a six-pack lights like I recommend – Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Like, that's not going to be a thing, right? And then you have to expand beyond that. So, like, th the biggest opportunity we really haven't talked about for a rep firm is a rep firm can carry multiple lines as long as those lines do not compete with each other. So, for instance, like, I had a rep firm that they carried the Fluke Network test line. Well, they carried the Burtek cable line. They carried mm -hmm. the Ortronics jack and patch panel line. They carried the Cablofill cable suspension line. They, so they ended up with all of these different ways into an account. So you got a, a, a corporation that's putting in 10,000 computer drops on multiple floors in five buildings, and they're like, shit, we need a, you know, like, we've always done cabling in the floor. This is a new build for us. We need, You need a suspension system. All this shit has to run through the roof. What are we going to do? And they would do research, and they find, you know, maybe Cablofill and a competitor. So then they contact those two companies. Yeah. Well, those two companies, they don't, like, they're not sending out a direct, like, jack to talk to you about suspension, which is basically shopping basket rack in the roof, <laughs> right? They call yeah. up CNC Sales and say, hey, man, we got a lead for you. So CNC walks in there. Oh, yeah, here's a suspension. Yeah, we can do that. Here's how it compares to what you're looking at. You know, and so this job, what, 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 who are you using for cable? Well, Lucent. Well, why? Well, we have this rep firm that we work with, and but they didn't have suspension. That's odd. Maybe we should see what we can do for you. Would you like us to lease yeah. get one of our, our, our manufacturer or our uh, distributors in touch with you at least bid this out? And we can get, like, our guy that specializes in the cabling side to come back in here and 
uh, talk to you about our warranty and our certification, our list of certified installers and things like that. And sometimes it would be, well, they had a relationship with the installer. Well, who's your installer? Well, you know, so and so. Oh, they're certified for our cable line. Yep. Right? And all of a sudden, now you're selling multiple things to this one account, but the tester or the suspension system or the cable itself was your in. There's so, like, so in the grow light industry, okay, well, what else do they need? They need uh, fertilizer mixing automated systems, right? They yep. need power yep. control systems. They need insulation. They need, there's so many things that go into building a vertical farm. Did yeah. a firm that actually specialized in everything that goes into that, or at least had connection to the expertise, because while Jack's a dick, when Jack shows up and goes, hey, John, let's look at your forecast and who are we going to see today, the other thing Jack is is a resource, Yep. So the, the, hopefully the dick is also a resource, right? And comes in and goes, you go, well, I don't really know. Set it up. Set yep. it up. I'll bring one of my, my freaking engineering weenies with me. We'll go in. We'll close this together, right? And that's yep. an opportunity that exists in the rep space that as a direct employee, you will never, ever, ever, ever infinity have that opportunity. And when you know there's an opportunity, you're like, listen. Here's, here's an example of one when I worked for a, a hardware manufacturer. We had media converters, really, really great, rugged, temperature-controlled, sensitive, like industrial-quality media converters. They go from copper to fiber. And they could handle vibration and stuff that uh, almost no one else could. <laughs> so we get a, I get a contact from a guy at Schlumberger where I'd been working some other stuff during the oil and gas oh, industry, yeah. right? Right. So they, they want my customers, by the way. Yeah. Oh, awesome! So they wanted <laughs> yeah. to put these single mode media converters in. Uh, I think they're called geophones or something like that. They go at the mm. bottom of the ocean and basically send a sonic wave into the ocean and then take a picture of what's underneath the the the, the ground and and determine whether or not you should actually drill there. So I'm like, we meet every spec you have, and we exceed it. That's great. Uh, but it won't fit. What do you mean it won't fit? <laughs> well, it's a square. If it were a rectangle, you could even have the same amount of board space. It would fit. It has to go in a tube. Tube can't change. <laughs> yep. Okay, so so I'm not you know pissing up a rope when I go to my boss here. Like, how many are we talking about? Oh, this year, half a million. <laughs> Yep. Half a million dollars? No, half a million units. Yeah, and couldn't get it done. Couldn't get no. it done. Oh, we'd have to respin the boards. Uh, uh, and I'm, so I go back and I'm like, okay, you know, there is a manufacturing process here. We'd have to respin boards. We've got to go to our suppliers. Like, is this talk or is this a commitment? I had them willing to commit to a minimum buy of 100 million units, and I still could not get it done. Whoa. Ah. Uh. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not 100 million, 100,000 units. 100,000 units couldn't get it done. Now, if I was a rep, I could have just went and found somebody that would do it. Yeah, especially for that volume, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, oh, man. Well, that oh, whole – 100 million, oh, I, I wish. I would have I would have quit my job <laughs> and got it done for 100 million. I'm sorry, 100,000 units, you know. And it wasn't a real high profit item, but it would also have been like, okay, so everybody uses this shit. You're going to have a product that nobody else has. With a, with a case scenario with the biggest engineering firm in the industry that fits in this thing. Nope, didn't want to do it. Huh? Yeah, that, that, was, that was a bean counter someplace with a spreadsheet, by the yeah. way, right? That, I that guess. Happened, that went out. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know that that whole um, and I hate the word, and I try not to use it because I think of office space, but like synergy. I yeah. don't, I can't find a better <laughs> word for that. But uh, yeah. but that that whole um, fit together of of the lines on your line card. That's a big reason why people hire us or, or hire other reps. I mean, we had a, a quick story that's similar to to yours in some ways. One of the lines we represent, they had been kicked out of a uh, uh, an OEM or a, a company that manufactures machines, which is one of our, our target groups that we call them. Uh, they have been kicked out of the OEM, basically booted out the door. You guys suck. We don't ever want to see you in here again. The direct <laughs> guy got booted out. Um, so, you know, I had gone in there for something else. They love me because I've helped them out with stuff, and I'm friends with everybody. And uh, we picked up that, that product line that got kicked out, you know, the year prior. And they're looking at um, the lines I represent. They're looking at my line card, and they're like, oh. You represent these guys? And they kind of look at me like, huh? I'm like, yeah, you know, they're a good company. They fix a lot of processes. Like, you know, we, we should quote some stuff for you. And you could see like their, their, the struggle inside yeah. of their brand. They're like, but I hate them, but I like you, yeah. but I really hate them, <laughs> but I really like you. And, yeah. you know, long story short, a year later, we, we were doing, um, back as little over a hundred thousand dollars of business we were doing with them. But that the only reason we were in there, if I tried to knock on their door and say, Hey, I'm here with company A, they'd be like, yeah, go pound sand. We don't care. Um, but since I was sitting there already for something else, I mean, it's, it was a, it was huge. That's a big deal. Well, cool, man. Hey, I, I really appreciate this. Is there any way people can learn more about you, what you do, et cetera? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, first of all, with regard to manufacturers reps, I, I've mentioned um, MANA a few times. So it's manaonline.org. They're the trade organization that I've volunteered my time to. Um, they have a tremendous, or I should say we have a tremendous volume of information about how to become a manufacturer's rep. The, the organization's been around since 47, I think it is. So throughout all that time, we've compiled just a great library of stuff. If you're interested in this and you think you want to give it a shot, you know, reach out to me or, or go to go to Man Online and, and check that out. Uh, otherwise, my, my company name is Paul Davis Automation. You can find us at pauldavisautomation.com. Uh, I recently did not do social media, um, but uh, you kept talking about things like Parler and MeWe and all that. So i Recently joined on MeWe. I, I kind of hang around the TSP uh, group on MeWe. Um, I am on Parler, although I don't post anything. I just lurk. But if you go on there and search for John Davis, everything's under my, um, you know, my real name. So you should be able to find me pretty easily. Very cool. And I've, I've got both of those sites pulled up, and I'll make sure that I, uh, I get them into our show notes for today. And I appreciate you spending some time with us. I'm sure it's got people thinking, and it allowed me to riff and reminisce and remember what I loved about that industry and and and, and why I left in the first place too. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. So well, you get on your forecast, and I'm going to get on my winter shutdown. How about that? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, I'll do my forecast, sir. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it, Jack. Thank, thank you. And if anybody has questions, I mean, feel free to reach out to me. Um, you know, through those channels or I'll give Jack my, my contact info. If you really want to ask me a question about sales or being a rep or um, anything, uh, you know, Jack can connect us and be more than happy to talk to anybody and help them out. You know, um, I hope nothing that I said negative would detract somebody from digging into this because I come from a perspective of being in a position that I don't ever want to be in again. And it's not just the job or the title, but The position, in other words, where you're at in the, the relationship, which isn't a middleman, where you have reps that are out there doing everything for you, and you're supposed to be their advocate, and at the same time you have to be the advocate of the company and often find them at odds. Regional management 
like that of a, of a rep firm based sales firm is an incredibly rewarding job on some levels. There's times I, I have a friend named David who's uh, in a different world, but you know, working large contracts, and he'll text me sometimes and say, "I'm about to close an eight million dollar contract," and I I think back and I, I, I that's like the only thing I miss. It's a form of hunting, right? Is is working those big deals. But when I look back on it, the firms that I had that were good, they were in a much better position in the world than I was at the time. Now, it was a good opportunity for me. I was young, coming up in my career. It made a reputation for me, and it taught me a lot. But I'm telling you, if I would have stayed in that world, I would have, I would have definitely went to work for a rep firm, bought into a rep firm, established a rep firm. There's no way I would have stayed in that middle that middle management role. Even if it's a top-level regional management position, it is still a middle position because you're in between two entities. And you're trying to serve everybody. And it is it is very difficult to be able to grab onto a territory, zone in on a niche, and do the best job for your clients and advocate for them. And only have one side to go back against. That's that's a pretty good position to be in. And I think there's again, I know a person that did the job that I had for Mattel Toys. That means that there is an opportunity to do manufacturers rep business for Mattel Toys. I'm not saying you should go try to do that. I'm just saying like if it exists in high level hardware, high level network testing, and in automation and motion control, and in toys, there's probably not a place that it doesn't exist, and it's just something to think about, and it is a good business model to build on. With that, let's go ahead and remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can help support what we're doing here by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you will help us out and support the work that we do. It's a really easy thing to do, especially this time of year where you're probably getting last-minute gifts and stuff like that for family and friends. Start at T-Spaz, and you will help us out. Today, though, I want to talk to you about a product line or a product that I have been recommending for longer than I've been doing T-Spaz, when I wasn't even recommending it as, as an affiliate. Uh, the UTD, UTG Ranger Field Bag. And I, I first found this bag back when I started TSP, and I was going to trade shows for TSP, for survival, prepping, etc. And, and like the one thing I knew that I could sell at those was branded T-shirts. And this is before Teespring and stuff like that. So you, like, you, you print it out, you went to a printer, you got a bunch of T-shirts made, and, you, and you, you went to a trade show and you took you know, 200 shirts. Well, you're going to sell 150, and it's going to cost money to send them back. So I decided that it would, it would cost me less to pay for an extra luggage bag and, and stack these things in it and, and go ahead and check it. And, and you might be thinking, like, can you put that many T-shirts in a duffel bag? Well, when you ask a former soldier... You know, can you fit X into a duffel bag? You usually get challenge accepted. And so, yeah, I would stuff this thing tightly rolled T-shirts, and that ends up being a lot of weight and a lot of bulk. And I took this thing to dozens of prepper expos before it finally crapped out. And that was abusive airline handling, way overweight, paying extra money on the weight, et cetera, because it, was still, it still made more sense than shipping back and forth. So that was the... Uh, the, 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 you know, the kind of the, uh, the Samsonite luggage gorilla test for me. And when it lasted through that for years, I, I determined this was a very well built bag. And I was down at, um, years ago where I get my CO2 car, uh, tanks filled up for my, uh, my Keezer, my, basically my home brew keg system. And uh, you use paintball stores for this. That, that's the best place to get your kegs filled or your, your canisters filled. And, um, 
I was in there and I saw a kid come in and he had this bag. And I said something to the guy about it. He says, oh, they all have that. They all use those. Because they're big, they're bulky, and they're rugged. And, you know, paintball players, they go place to place and they throw stuff all over and bust it up. Well, it's on sale right now for 45 bucks. This bag's big. I mean, talk, talk and put a small person in it big. Rugged, it makes a great vehicle kit. It also works as a backpack. That was really valuable to me, taking it through airports and things like that with a bunch of weight on it. It is just an amazing bag for the price, 45 bucks. This is not an SOE tactical gear bag from somebody like John Willis. It's not that kind of thing. But for what it is and for the size it is, if you want a big, rugged transport bag for like a large vehicle kit or for travel, etc., it is really hard to beat this thing at 60 bucks. And at 45, I'm going to call it stupid cheap. So check it out today. It is the TSP item of the day at tspaz.com. Remember, if you were on my email list or my telegram or anything like that, you would already know. Well, not the email list. Everything else, you'd already know about it. So if the sale, the sale on this probably will last for a couple days. Sometimes when I have these items like this, they come up on like special deals I find. I put them out, and by the time the show goes out, they're already gone. So really think about joining, if nothing else, the Telegram channel. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Get Social, and you see all the ways you can connect with us through alternative social media. And uh, I'm telling you, the Telegram channel works really well for people. Because the way the Telegram channel works is all you get is my messages. You don't communicate back. It's not a group. Some people love the groups, and they love you know a couple hundred people talking to each other about stuff all day long. Other people are like, that's too much crap. Like just not, That's just not me. And for those people, the channel, it's a direct one-way communication. You get four or five texts a day from me. You pay attention to the ones you want to, and the, and the ones you don't, you ignore. It's really easy. You change your mind, you just unsubscribe. It's like having me texting you, but having a, 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 not having me, me not having your phone number. It's a really great system, and it is, you know, Telegram is run by people that believe in freedom as well. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up for the day with our song of the day. Today's song of the day is an interesting one. It's one of the reasons I'm glad I have John Adam doing our music, because I probably would have never picked it if myself. It's by Toby Keith, who I love, so it's nothing about not liking. It's just not one of those songs that's really heavy on my radar. It's called That's Country, Bro. And it is, uh, it's interesting. It's almost like the country version of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, but instead of events, it's people. There's, there's like 40-odd or 50-odd people from, from country music, like the, 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 the lates and the greats uh, of, of real country mentioned in this song in a, in a little less than three minutes. It totally gets them all in, kind of that rapid-fire thing. And the song at the same time is kind of a dig at like what people call bro country. You know, bro country, like the guy, you know, he wears a T-shirt and a cowboy hat and jeans, so he's country, but he's doing like, you know, white boy rap and shit like that, bro country. Bro country ain't country. So instead of bro country, that's country, bro. This stuff here, this is the real deal. With that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Johnny Horton dancing Bill Monroe Woody Guthrie, Bob Wills, Spade Coon and Kerry Wells Jimmy Dean and Big John and old Hank Snow Heard a man a weekend up we tuned in on the AM radio That's country bro Yeah, that's country bro Dolly Parton, Johnny Cash 
country road Jimmy Lou and Conway Twitty Mama Mel in Detroit City Crystal Galen, Willie Whalen David Allen Cole Earl Thomas, City Rabbit Shenandoah, Alabama George Street and Randy Travis Digging up bones Some on evil Singing in their overalls Junior was a star of the show